Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We review the Hungarian Grand Prix and explain what's going on with Force India. Hungarian Grand Prix was the race Mercedes wasn't meant to win. But thanks to a combination of rain on Saturday, a well-managed race, Lewis Hamilton came away with an unexpected victory. And Valtteri Bottas came within six laps of making it a Silver Arrows 1-2 before things unravelled for him quite spectacularly. I'm your host, Ed Stewart, and joining me in our backstreet holiday apartment in downtown Budapest to explain how it all happened first is Scott Mitchell. Now, Scott, have you recovered from the, the slight setback we had when we first arrived here and couldn't get into our aforementioned apartment at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> um i don't know maybe i mean i i feel like you're generously describing this as our holiday apartment because this week hasn't really felt like much of a holiday i don't know many holidays that start with desperately ringing around hotels in the town center at half past two in the morning before settling on the nearest possible holiday in i did find one you did and also i maybe i should mention other holiday chains are available 
Of course, of course. What we really want is an Alan Partridge travel tavern. That's what uh, what we're really looking for. And my second guest is Ben Anderson. Now, Ben, Hello. when he's speaking, you might hear a little bit of the, the nightlife of Budapest because every now and again, the street outside erupts. It's not kind of primary. We're just off the sort of... Erupts? Sort of, <laughs> no, it's all right. Isn't it? Is it's it like, volcanic in Budapest? I hope not. I hope not, although it's been a... It's been an explosive race. What can you see going on behind me that I'm not aware of? A curtain. Cur- curtains mainly, but but oh, things it's curtains. But things- Budapest is erupting, and it's curtains for me. Thanks, Ben Anderson. <laughs> exactly. This is not what I expected. Noisy things happen out there. You get all sorts of uh, all sorts of drunkards at strange hours, and you also get some kind of building site work turning up at sort of six in the morning as well. So it's a it's a it's a wide range of things. It's a plethora all going of noises. on. Yeah, so your your great observations on the Hungarian Grand Prix might get drowned out, but uh, we wish you luck. But the good you. thing is, the horse that disagrees with Scott Mitchell is not here. So Scott will be able to talk nonsense unchallenged by uh, I look said forward horse. to it. It's he's, the making of the podcast. He's not going to phone in? Uh, I can't rule that out. I can't rule that out. Mm. Perhaps we could have a, a, a little audio spot with the horse, uh, or we could uh, cut him in from uh, previous episodes, but I think, I think we're getting a bit off the point. Now, let's actually get <laughs> on to the race. Now... Ben, the key to the Hungarian Grand Prix was actually qualifying, specifically the weather. Hamilton and Bottas locked out the front row ahead of Kimi Räikkönen and Sebastian Vettel. Now, in, in dry conditions, it's a Ferrari on pole, isn't it? And it's a very different result, surely. So why couldn't Vettel compete in the wet? Were the Mercedes drivers just too good for him, or was the Ferrari just relatively weaker in those conditions? I mean, Vettel was 0.552 down, Räikkönen just ahead of him, 0.528 down. Well, Vettel certainly seemed to think that it was down to the Ferrari not being as good in the wet. He claimed after the session that they hadn't had a lot of running in the wet, that they needed more time to sort the setup out. I'm inclined to think that actually on this occasion, the Mercedes drivers were just too good for him. Uh, Mark Webber tweeted a video of Hamilton's pole lap in Q3 and mentioned the particular line he took around the final two corners where the rain was at its heaviest, I think, in qualifying. Uh, He took a tight line through the left penultimate corner and then a sort of standard, I guess, conventional dry line through the final corner, whereas most drivers were running really wide through the penultimate well, well, corner. Well, actually, for precisely that reason, I had a look at uh, Bottas's on board. He takes kind of the conventional sort of wet line fairly wide, and he's, he's scrabbling for grip in 13. That's the left hand of the penultimate corner. Yes. Vettel goes in way too deep, and actually Vettel gets slightly off the track because there's the green paint delineating the runoff. Mm. And he, Which s- several drivers were doing uh, exactly, to, with yeah. no harm, And he got onto that, but what Vettel and Bottas weren't able to do that Hamilton was able to do was just keep the line uh, keep the car in line smooth get on the power and then in the final corner he was smooth through there we also saw Bottas the rear stepped out on him so just all those uh, those uh, little differences and I think I think you know this is just one of those occasions where you know, engineers always say that um, with modern Formula 1 cars there's so much downfalls you have to run the platform so stiff to cope with that there isn't really such thing as a wet setup anymore they stick the wet tyres on they make some wing adjustments you've got to get your tyre pressures right and your uh, tyre blankets right but really then it's down to the driver isn't it they've got to go out there improvise find the grip search it out and make the most of it and in those kind of occasions a driver like Vettel who likes the car to be absolutely on point just doing... there's a local with a hole in his exhaust who just drove past yes absolutely that's part of this uh, erupting nightlife that Ed mentioned earlier Vettel likes the car to be absolutely right for him and in the wet things are just a bit more vague you don't really get everything you like that's where a driver like Hamilton who's you know, a, a, an artist really behind the wheel. He just he just manages to find things that other drivers can't, and I think that's what you saw on Saturday. That made the difference for Mercedes more than any inherent pace advantage in the car. Well, here's a statistic for you: Lewis Hamilton has won the last nine rain influence Grand Prix. 
obviously not including this one because the, the race was dry, but the previous nine wet races he's won. And, and he was talking about this on, on Thursday because he was asked about it from the perspective of how well he'd driven at uh, Hockenheim when the, when the rain came. He just says, well... In the wet, that's when the drivers really come to the fore. You can find the find the grip, you know, search it out, really respond to your feel and and, and where you can you can understand what the car's doing, which he which he really was was able to do. I mean, you could say maybe that with the higher rake there is on the Ferrari and the even higher rake on the Red Bull, there there is a suggestion that that combined with the fact that the ride height's a little bit higher when you put the wet tires on because of the only fractionally, but it all but, makes a difference. And the, but, the suggestion is possibly that has an influence on the ability to seal the underfloor and get get the ground but effect. But Kimi Raikkonen in third felt that the car was easily good enough for pole and he would have had it but for getting stuck behind another car, the spray he couldn't see, excuses, excuses. I, I, so I, fundamentally, I think the Ferrari was good enough. The drivers just didn't get the most out of the car. I think a Ferrari driver drives like Hamilton did. They've certainly got a very good shot upon. Yeah. Qualifying very much set the, set the stage. Now, Scott, Looking at the race, Hamilton led from Bottas at the start. Once Vettel had gone around the outside of Raikkonen for third, we had Mercedes, Mercedes, Ferrari, Ferrari. Now, was there ever really a chance of Ferrari forcing the issue to win this one, given how valuable track position is at the Hungaroring? Yeah, well, they'd, they'd set themselves up for it by um, by eliminating Hamilton's protection early on, by pitting Raikkonen on what I think, I think it was lap 15. And then one lap later, Bottas stops, obviously, to cover that and make sure that he doesn't get jumped because... It was 14 for Raikkonen, oh, 15 for Bottas. I'm, I'm terrible. Sorry about that. Inaccuracy. <laughs> so Kimi, so Kimi stops. He's, I think he'd got to a, a, about a second behind Bottas. He was putting pressure on. Bottas has to stop a lap later to cover that, otherwise he loses track position to the Ferrari. That frees up Vettel running in third to not necessarily have a go at Hamilton because he was on soft tyres. Hamilton's ultra soft, so that wasn't going to happen. But it works from a strategic point of view. He doesn't have a bottleneck should that situation arise. He'd got himself within the, the, the Bottas pit window. I don't really know the best way to word that. Was he was it within Bottas's pit window or was Bottas out of Vettel's pit window? I don't really know how that particular uh, phraseology should work. But basically, Vettel either way is fine. I think Vettel would have got himself into a position whereby he could pit and he would have emerged ahead of Bottas. But unfortunately, they they kept a plan A, which was to run to whatever lap it was they stopped. He hit a bit of traffic, fell back from Hamilton at the same time. Bottas pumped in a couple of quick laps, I think two consecutive fastest laps at the time, which then got Bottas back within the Vettel pit window. So when Vettel did stop, all of that combined with a slow pit stop. Left front, wasn't it? Yeah, dropped dropped, uh, Vettel back behind Bottas. Now Vettel says that he reckons he would have had the pace by then bolting on a set of ultra softs to the soft tyres on the on the other guys that he would have been able to close up to Hamilton, but he doesn't think he would have had enough enough to actually make a pass. He could have done the catching but not the passing. But the fact remains that had Ferrari not basically spooked themselves by not having the faith in the ultra softs to go the distance, he would have had a cleaner run and there might have at least been a, a thrilling finale at the front rather than this sort of uh, calamitous end uh, well, not end, but calamitous battle for second that, that I'm sure we'll discuss in a bit. Well, Vettel even mentioned after coming out of the pits on the Ferrari radio that he felt there was a, still a bit more life in the tyres and that he could have, once the traffic had cleared, he could have gone faster. And I think he, he started to make this point to Ferrari as he exited the pits and he said, well, it's too late now and parked it. So there is a feeling that even from within the cockpit that maybe Ferrari just pulled the trigger that bit too soon. Well, they went either way, didn't they? They could have either brought him in early and... Taking that slight gamble on the the ultra soft tyres, perhaps not lasting those extra two or three laps, but they'd have avoided the traffic that they would have been able to see on the map was coming and not lose that time, get out ahead, get track position. 
or they could have run longer and tried to regain that advantage. Because by that time, you've lost track position. So worst case scenario, you're going to be behind the person you're going to be behind if you stop anyway. So why not run at that point? Why not run a lap or two longer and try and get back in front I again? That's, I just the, point, that's yeah, the point Vettel was making. Yeah, they just Ferrari, got stuck, didn't they? they? They stuck to plan A. I, I assume it was plan A. And then... And it it uh, might have worked if, the, if there hadn't been the tyre delay on the left front he might have contested that first corner with Bottas. I think Ferrari was spooked by Bottas's pace suddenly, weren't they? And they just thought, we need to get him in and get him out now or we're in big trouble. Well, an interesting point was that um, on the radio at the end of the race, um, there was a message to Valtteri, which didn't go out on the main feed, where they said to him, yeah, we're going to have to have a look at ultra, your ultra soft stint because you, you found some magic pace at the end on that, at which Bottas said, yeah, okay. And it sounded a bit to me like him saying, where did that pace come from? Why wasn't it there earlier? which is an interesting one. So maybe um, Bottas could have... So much for the perfect race. Well, exactly, exactly. But ultimately, at the same time, Mercedes were having to manage the uh, the tyres fairly cautiously. So um, I, it, I don't know whether that's entirely justified. But it's not the first time this year we've seen Bottas do that on like a long stint where he just sort of... He doesn't tug, that's the wrong word, but he, he sort of sits at around a few seconds back from whoever he's in front of and he's gradually slipping back as the stint goes on and it's nothing spectacular. And then just because of that cautiousness, he's, a, a, he's either able to extend that stint longer or he just gets that, he gets really quick at the end. And I, I can't, I can never, never, ever work it out. I remember it, it was the same in Baku. You know, when he sort of, sort of almost by accident played himself into the victory picture before the safety car yeah, emerged in Baku. Up, yeah. And it's like, I can never work out, has he managed this perfectly or is he just that little bit slower? Just is he just slower, and that uses the tires less, and then he just and then he starts pushing at the end of the stint, and he and he's got it, and he's like, oh, I should have done this earlier. I think he just doesn't quite have the absolute finesse in terms of managing the tires. I mean, last year that was one of his big weaknesses compared to Hamilton; that he just wasn't as good at at managing the the rubber. So I think he builds in a certain ele- extra element of conservatism in order to make sure he can do the stint without problem. And of course, then when you get to the point where you need to extract the last bit of the tyres around the pit stops, he's just got more in hand because he's over-managed the early part. It's like someone running the marathon, isn't it? And just sort of like trying to, you know, manage it. Don't like, blow up, sure, don't yeah, blow up, yeah. don't blow up. Oh, oh, actually, oh, I've probably got another half a mile or so in my legs. I probably should have pushed this a little bit earlier on. Whereas Hamilton, I think, lives much more on the, the margin all the time. Yeah, exactly. And Ultimately, coming back to the decision from from Ferrari to stick with their plan, that did mean that they ended up sacrificing the the virtual track position they'd gained over Bottas, and that that changed the race. Personally, I think you don't sacrifice track position. They probably should have responded a bit quick, more quickly to the time loss, because even though ultimately it was probably the the slow stop that cost him, it was only about was it five point two seconds stop? He says off the top of his head, it was something like that. So it was within the realm of time you would expect to lose if the stop goes a little bit wrong but not disastrously wrong so I think you want to give yourself the best roll of the dice and then suddenly you're further up the road you're closer to Hamilton if there's a virtual safety car or a safety car or something weird happens or Hamilton makes a bit of a mistake you're putting more pressure on him he's got to take more out of the tyres that's the that's the way you you give yourself the the best chance but Hungaroring's tricky on on traffic so that's the race we, we kind of didn't have Hamilton's off he crosses the line 17 seconds clear and in fact that was from back in from the last lap I think it would have been 19 or something seconds uh, he'd won by and of course, it was Vettel who was second. So, Ben, Bottas came so close to hanging on to second place with his long stint on softs, with Vettel and Raikkonen behind him and then Ricardo closing on them all. All came to a head six laps from home when Vettel attacked into turn one. Bottas defended, then Vettel made his move around the outside into turn two. Stewards investigated it but took no action. 
right call? What did you make of the incident? Yeah, I think that was the right call. Um, I kind of felt that they were almost as bad as each other. And what I mean by that is Bottas was in a situation where his tyres were, they were done. Uh, and you could see how, how much he was struggling for traction off of turn one. Vettel had the pass easily on the run to turn two. It was basically done before turn two. And Vettel turns in normally into turn two. He thinks he's clear of the Mercedes that Bottas won't contest. I don't understand why he didn't build in a little bit of margin, knowing that there's a chance the guy you've just taken the place from and whose only chance to get you back is there isn't going to stick it down the inside. He turns in as if nothing's untoward. I think that's a mistake on Vettel's part. Bottas, I think, hesitates. It's one of these classic situations when Bottas is wheel-to-wheel. He does, doesn't quite know what to do in the heat at the moment. I think he knew he was done, that Vettel had the place, and you see him just think, oh, shall I have a lunge down the inside? And then he sees that Vettel's closing the door and backs out of it, but it's too late. He's locked up, and they collide. So I think it didn't affect the overall result because... Vettel was passed and was going to finish ahead of Bottas, but I do think they they were both 50-50 in that. They both made mistakes. I disagree with uh, Ben's, uh, the way he apportions blame. I don't think it's that, that equal. I think it's 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 more it's more in Bottas's his camp, the blame. The, I felt a bit of sympathy for Bottas because he constantly, constantly gets accused of not being aggressive enough in battle. And then it's kind of like when, um, was it? Where, where was it? Was it 2016, 2017? Ros- uh, it was 2016, obviously, because Rosberg had retired. 2016, when Rosberg lumped up the inside of Kimi at Mal- in Malaysia. And Rosberg, obviously, oh, he's not very good wheel-to-wheel. He's not aggressive enough. And then, obviously, we've seen him try and do it with Hamilton, run him out of road, and then lunge Kimi. And Bottas tries to do it. Gets uh, Rosberg tries to do it, gets it wrong, hits the other car. I kind of feel like we're seeing it again with Bottas. Gets criticism for not being aggressive enough. And when he tries to do it, he just misjudges it. The reason I think it's more sort of to it's more his fault in this occasion is he's is he's being passed and while i accept that he's trying to hang on on the inside and he doesn't want to give up the place and there's five laps to go and he's probably still got a little bit of what happened at silverstone obviously and that was in in itself had been a follow on from what happened in china where he's vulnerable uh from attack on 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 aging tires I just think you've been passed you know as you said ben the, the move is basically done I, I applaud the effort to try and stay there, but at some point you have to say enough is enough, I've lost this place. And I think when Vettel has squeezed him to the inside already, he's on the dirty side of the track, he's on tyres that he knows are, are absolutely shot. That's the whole reason Vettel was able to, to, to outgun him on the run out of turn one. Never mind the fact that Bottas defended, you, we saw the big wiggle he got. And I just think in that situation, the blame is more in Bottas's side just because the circumstances around it meant that it wasn't a straight him trying to attack on the inside he was always the weaker party i just think you just need that little bit better judgment to avoid it so that's why i think it's more his fault uh potentially i mean looking at it i think Vettel should have left him a little bit more space oh, i, I agree with that yeah Vettel's was not blameless because when it when it comes to the the punishment from the stewards the phraseology is a driver has to be wholly or predominantly to blame and i think not in that case i, I, think. I don't i don't think Bottas goes as far as being predominantly to blame. I had a, yeah. a bit of a look at it, and you, you know he's on the inside, he's breaking, and Vettel just just should have. I think Vettel just think, just assumes he's clear of him, which yeah, which he wasn't. Bottas is still there. Um, the move wasn't quite done, was it? Yeah, it was th- almost I, done, but it wasn't quite. And done. I think Bottas was had it kind of accepted it 
it was over. But and then he thought, oh, this is my last chance. I'll oh, just have well, a little well, look at the he's inside. Still got, he's still got to stop the car. He's still only got yeah. so much and on old tires retardation capacity with the yeah. braking system on, particularly how dirty it is off track. Yeah. So I, I think I, I think the verdict was was I think that because the stewards noted it, but didn't take any action, didn't look at it properly. I, I think that's fine. Yeah. I know there's a whole thing about consequences shouldn't influence any decisions anyway, but. They always do, they don't they? Whatever people they, say, they kind of have to, I think, for for you to have a workable kind of system of, of justice. I think it was a classic so, so racing think, incident, yeah, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly, racing incident for me, and justice was served ultimately. Well, I'm outvoted two to one. I was going to keep on arguing the point, but I won't. I'll concede ground. You two win. You scared of the horse, aren't you? You had, you had more to say on that point. The one point I was going to make, I've forgotten, so there's no point. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Must have been a very the horse will be point. happy. Glenn Freeman and Marcus Simmons will be happy. I've had them on my back on Twitter this evening for daring to voice a contrary opinion to the to the majority. Well, there we go. For all sport colleagues, uh, we don't we don't all necessarily agree the same thing. It's uh, it's it's a It'd be boring. A, a, if we did this game, podcast, would be rubbish. It's a game of opinions. A game of opinions. Well, let's have a look. Talk about the next incident, which was Daniel Ricciardo and Bottas. Now, I'll start off with my opinion because I get to decide who. <laughs> my, my feeling is the reason Bottas got the 10 second penalty, which is ultimately meaningless, but laid a marker down. And two penalty points on his license. That shouldn't be overlooked because that isn't an insignificant penalty because they can. It's very easy to build them up, I think. Yeah, 12 points gets you a ban uh, for one race. So the problem for me with, with Bottas in that situation is he had damaged front wing. He knew that and he was trying to hold on on the inside against Ricardo and he slid into him ultimately and I think he knew he had the problem he had to be more more sensible in that one that's why that that one for me was a, a stronger case of a driver being wholly or predominantly to blame I agree I think Bottas was holding doesn't make fault. good podcast listening well in, in that case I think it was Bottas losing some of his famous cool I think he could see his race had completely unraveled he had the incident with Vettel he'd slipped back to fourth from second his car was damaged so Ricardo's on the attack him and Ricardo have got a bit of history from the Formula Renault Euro Cup days anyway. I don't think they particularly like each other. And I think Bottas just felt, I've got to get my elbows out here and keep him behind. Yeah, you say he, he defends the inside, but by the time they make contact, he's basically over on the left-hand side of the track. There's barely any room left for Ricardo oh, on well, the outside. You know, we say how much room Vettel left Bottas. Ricardo left room for multiple Bottas on yeah. the inside, and he still, still found And I, I think that was poor judgment from Bottas because, again, he risks scoring no points at all. If that contact is any worse, he breaks his suspension, he's out of the race. Okay, he's not going to finish second, but you always say, Ed, it's about driving the race that's in front of you. And in that incident, Bottas isn't doing that. He's he's just trying to defend out of desperation. And yeah, he nearly risked all those points. If I'm, if I'm blaming Bottas for the Vettel incident on the grounds that I think in, when you consider the circumstances he was in on the run down to turn two in that particular incident... I think he was in the wrong not to back out and he should have accepted he should have backed out then it's not just he's not just in the wrong with the Ricardo incident it's utterly unacceptable to go in leg slapping leg slapping leg, leg slappingly unacceptable to at that speed when you're when you're braking from such a high speed you've got someone passing you on the outside with an undamaged car quicker better tires everything in their favor I just think it's unacceptable for you to race, try to race wheel to wheel as if there's nothing wrong with your car. The whole reason Ricardo suddenly got onto the back of him was because of the extent of the damage on Bottas' car. You can't do that. And I just think that was, I completely agree with Ben. He's lost his car. podcast. Yeah, yeah. He's, <laughs> he's just not thinking about it. And, and I just think I, you, I, you just can't do that. That, that 
totally in the wrong. It just it just shows how easy it is for a race to unravel, isn't it? Once you have a, a you know a, an incident like he had with Vettel, or a position taken away from you that feel, you feel by rights is yours. And I mean, think Mercedes even anticipated the penalty and said to Bottas, well, "You should probably give that place up to Ricardo to Ricardo save yourself thank a trip." You, for that. <laughs> to, you should probably save yourself a trip to the stewards. And Bottas was so furious, he refused. Yeah, he didn't look like someone who's giving up the position today. He? he did right. get passed, but. Yeah. He wasn't making it easy. And that's very uncharacteristic of Bottas. You always see him as this kind of archetypal ice-cool fin behind the wheel, which he, he usually is. But in, in this case, the last five, six laps of that race, he completely unravelled. I think it's a shame because, as we referenced, the the hardness in battle is a, a thing he's been criticised about before internally within teams going back to the Williams day. So that's probably something that's in the back of his mind as well, that he's trying to be the... You know, he's a fantastic driver, Bottas, but he's not. Absolutely, necess- yeah. He's not necessarily your kind of elbows out fighting driver in in, in that way. He tends to sometimes, uh, sometimes struggle a little bit there. But you know, it's, it's a shame for him because he did drive a very good race. I think Toto Wolff, it's a slightly unfortunate choice of words, but uh, words. But I think it was well meant. He described him as Hamilton's wingman <laughs> yeah, because well, he was. He wasn't almost he? completed the the most sensational bit of damage limitation with. Mercedes taking a one-two at a circuit they had no chance of winning at. There was a lot of PR management going on with that statement, wasn't there, after the race? With Bottas taking it slightly the wrong way and maybe the TV crews taking it the wrong way and putting it to Bottas that, oh, he's just Hamilton's wingman, he's number two. Bottas said he was hurt by that and it's far too early as far as the championship goes. But you had Toto Wolff then saying, oh, no, I didn't mean that. I just meant he drove the perfect rear guard race for us as a team which Bottas then accepted in a social media statement. But, I mean, if you look at the races objectively, he was sacrificed for Hamilton, wasn't he? They they covered Raikkonen's strategy by pitting Bottas. It was second car for second car. And then it was down to him to just basically create a silver blockade in front of the red cars. But but also, in, he, doing, in doing so, if he'd completed that, he would have gained second place. So yes, have, he would, yeah. It, uh, the, a second place that had, that had been lost temporarily should we say so you know it wasn't a ridiculous one it was a defensive measure as well because he could have then lost the position to Reichel I think there was a lot of over-egging of it from Mercedes I mean Wolf said it was Bottas's best race since he's been at the team but we've pointed out many aspects of the race including that first stint on the ultra softs that just wasn't really quite I'm I'm strongly disagreeing with that one yeah well, that just does a disservice to the wins that Bottas earned last year and resisting pressure from Vettel and well, stuff like that. Performance he's had, he's had yeah, this absolutely. Year, yeah? The qualifying performance in Monaco last year as well, stuff like that. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm going to take slight issue with something Ben said about Bottas being a wingman. Um, the fact that it's evidenced in the early strategy call, because actually I, I, I disagree on the grounds that if Merck wanted to sacrifice Bottas's race early to protect Hamilton, they wouldn't have pit him early on. They'd have kept him out, kept him as a buffer between Hamilton and Vettel instead of pitting him to maintain track position against Raikkonen. That protected Bottas' race, didn't it? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Um, I guess my, I'm, I'm looking at it from the other angle in that Ferrari chose to attack with Raikkonen to take Bottas out of the race in and, terms and of Merck Vettel. And fell for it. And Yes, exactly. So essentially Bottas was always the sacrificial lamb in that scenario. Well, Even if they still did the maybe, maybe something that helped his race. I still feel that ultimately if they just ignored Ferrari's shenanigans, Bottas would have finished second with a slightly extended stint and uh, show, showing some of that pace that you mentioned he had in the tyres earlier. The difficult thing is, is he'd have had a, he'd have had a Raikkonen eating up the track behind him so that that's what they'd have been that's what they'd have been worried about i mean it, i think plenty of people in that race did actually do very well out of running long we saw that in the midfield so actually yeah that's true it, it may well have worked but the thing is this is what it's all about it's ferrari versus mercedes it's a really in, intense championship fight isn't it so every single 
race, even this early in the season, it feels more like a championship run-in in a yeah. way because every single race, every single weapon you've got, you've, you've got to use. And to be fair, Potter saying it's a bit too early for him to be a wingman. Well, Lewis Hamilton's got 213 points. Valtteri Potter's got 132. He's so, a wingman. So we don't know what he's like in the nightclub, but he's undoubtedly a wingman. No, by he? definition, let's face it, he could win three races unanswered, and he'll still be behind Hamilton on points. So you know, you have to be realistic. It's not actually Valtteri's fault enormously because he's lost some wins. Uh, you know, he's lost results, etc. But oh, he should be that, in the that, fight. But that ultimately, he just isn't, is he? No. And he just and the sooner they accept that, the better the chance they've got. Because this is the thing: that Ferrari is so good. And Raikkonen's operating at a decent enough level that Raikkonen is firmly in that four-car fight. So when the Ferrari is the quickest car, Merck flat out have to consider both Ferraris. They can't just worry themselves yes. with Vettel anymore. So so Merck need to make a decision if they haven't already. They need to they need to work out when and how they're going to execute Bottas in Hamilton's favour because that's going to be absolutely crucial if Ferrari keep this edge that it looks like they've got over Mercedes in the second half of the season. Well, remember it was after the August break last year, that they came back and said to Valtteri, actually, we're probably going to have to start using you as a number two. Uh, that, that's the point that things changed a little bit, the dynamic in the team changed. Because if you remember, in Hungary last year, they did the late swap because they'd let Hamilton have a go and he gave yeah, the position yeah. back to back to Bottas. So maybe they'll have to have a bit of a think about that. But it's... They agonise over it, don't they? Because it's not it's not comfortable for them. They've had this whole period where it was two two number ones slugging it out, no rivals to think about. And now they're in a completely different scenario with a rival team threatening them and two drivers capable of making a race of it. So not an easy one for Mercedes to navigate. They haven't really got experience in this kind of situation. Before we, we move on to matters off track, let's just quickly throw in Pierre Gasly. Now, Scott, Charles Leclerc has been the, the star rookie, but he was out after one lap. But Gasly, fantastic drive, qualified six, finished six. How, how good was that performance and how impressed have you been with a driver who we've perhaps not talked about as much as we should have done on this podcast uh, over the months? In terms of how good the performance is, probably best to, to use an example that he gave in his post-race session where he pointed out that it's the first time he'd he's seen blue flags in a race and they've not been for him. <laughs> so he said that was the moment I thought, oh, bloody hell, I'm actually driving a really good race because he was up there. You know, until Ricardo came uh, flying back through after starting in the midfield and dropping back, Gasly was running, I think, a comfortable fifth. He think he was an extremely comfortable best of the rest until... Once Verstappen retired, yeah, once early on, wasn't he? Yes, it? yes. But he, um, I mean, for me, the really impressive bit was... In the first stint, he was about three tenths a second a lap quicker than Magnussen. I know there was some strategic management going on there. That's very impressive Hass, with Hass, Gasly's pace. Hass, yeah, Hass wanted to make sure they had enough fuel, etc., and they thought Magnussen would come back. But yeah, Gasly just managed to just nail the pace. He did the same thing in Bahrain, actually, ahead of the same driver, because he had to fend off Magnussen early on. And then he was just able to get himself to the front of that Class B and then stay there. And then stay there. The way I look at it is if, if this was a, a race to win at the front whereby a driver not in the quickest car in the midfield group, because Toro Rosso ultimately wasn't the, the quickest car. It's a strong around Hungary. But yeah, think, slow corner track, but, wasn't yeah, it? But I think that's where the Toro is In dry qualifying, it's not there, but he aced it in the wet in qualifying and then he just he did, yeah. executed the race to, to perfection. Quickest Red Bull driver in qualifying. Yeah, he was very, very good in qualifying. And you mentioned that the Hungara ring is a, is a good track for Toro Rosso. I think it's also a good track for Honda because the... 
the the Honda engine this year is its drivability is very good. And if you think back to it's where McLaren used to get its best results as well, yeah. wasn't it in the McLaren Honda? But days. If you consider like you think back to early 2017, all the problems with the Honda engine's drivability in year three because of the various various issues they had with weird upshifts and stuff like that it was a nightmare coming off corners and they've worked really hard on that and actually um Gasly said it, it the drivability of that that engine the way it sort of accelerates off corners it's a much more consistent process than the 2017 Renault so the experience that he had in in uh, late 2017 when he made his debut with Toro Rosso um and actually that probably played quite a significant part in the um in the qualifying result on, on, on Saturday because obviously you get good drivability off of those low traction conditions and that's going to be a, a significant a significant help. But take nothing away from, from Gasly. I know Hartley made it into Q3 as well and said he put his balls on the line in doing so. But it's the third opportunity this year that Torosso and Honda have had to score big points. And what's Gasly's results in those trio of races? Three big points hauls. So he's matured into a, a really, really good Grand Prix driver halfway through his first season. Okay, we're coming up to the point where he's been around for almost a year. But the other guy in that team, Hartley, okay, doesn't have bags of F1 experience, but he was hired as a safe pair of hands coming in with X number of years and titles in LMP1. And it's Gasly who's matured as the team leader. And I think he deserves a lot of credit. He's sort of the silent star, isn't he, of, of, of F1 2018. He's not really got a lot of headlines, but he's doing an amazing job. Yeah, Gasly's delivering for Torosso the sort of results Science was delivering from them last year, and that was Science's third season in Formula 1. So it just shows you the progression that Gasly's made in, in short order, really. Very impressive. That makes Gasly a serious contender for Red Bull seat down yes. the line with the, with the main team, so that's one to keep an eye on. And the remains of the points, Kevin Magnussen 7th, Fernando Alonso 8th, Carlos Sainz 9th and Roman Grosjean 10th. So that, that completes the uh, the point scorers in a, a race that was fairly interesting in the midfield in that you had uh, Hartley suffered a bit because he stopped early and he was jumped by Alonso. Van Dorn, who then retired with a gearbox problem, he was on course for the Ocon as a roadblock, didn't you, running Grosjean? Yeah, so it's uh, a little bit of movement, although it wasn't on track uh, on track passes that were causing it. But a shame for Van Dorn, because after his recent troubles, he was set really to good race. Alonso actually, yeah, we were all impressed. I think we all felt sorry for him when we saw the car coming coming to a halt. He tracked Alonso all the way through, didn't he? He was very unlucky. Well, I had a look at that. When they were running together, the, the race pace in the... In the first stint, when he's running behind Alonso, he was 0.076 slower, and then the second stint, 0.133 slower before the gearbox gave out. So, yeah, spot on, isn't it? When you think this year he's done well, before this he he was doing well to get within three tenths of Alonso, wasn't he? He was being absolutely well. Re- recent races, he said he couldn't match him in a single corner. So to be that close across, yeah, the he stint had a new chassis, really didn't he? Or not a new chassis, sorry, chassis change, chassis change, going back to an old chassis. But it's good whether, I don't know what that was, whether there was a serious defect on the previous chassis, whether some of it was mental, I don't really know. But I'm just really pleased because we know he's a proper driver. He's not a mug. It's nobody's fool. So it's really just good to see him back to what he called a normal weekend. Well, that wraps up for the first part of the podcast. So we look at what happened on track. We'll be back in a moment to talk about the off-track goings-on. Well, now on to off-track goings-on. The biggest off-track talking point in Hungary was Force India going to administration as a result of a case brought by Sergio Perez, supported by both Mercedes and main sponsor BWT. Now, Scott, you've been all over this story in the past few days, and there's a bit more to it than than meets the eye, so please uh, untangle it for us. I think uh, I think when, when the story started to break, especially with Perez's involvement, the immediate reaction, probably not probably understandably was 
how how can Perez be bringing action against his own team? And very very fair question. But you know the way he he went on to explain this a bit a bit more fully on on Saturday evening. But it emerged fairly quickly that this wasn't just a simple case of Perez. Oh, I'm owed some money. I, I I want it back. I've had enough now. And screw you guys. I don't care what happens. I'm doing it. it was orchestrated. It was a it was a planned move because Force India had faced uh, a hearing to be wound up on on Wednesday in, in back in the UK. Brought by another creditor. Brought by, an, brought by another creditor that was owed money. So Perez was basically pushed into using the fact that he is owed money by the team to bring an action to for an administration hearing, which was held on Friday. This superseded the events of of, of Wednesday's hearing. Um, during this, there was a, a fanciful offer from a from a group that I'm not going to give any extra publicity to by giving their names, but basically it was a £30 million sponsorship offer spread across two £15 million payments, which would have been a stay of execution, basically. It would have given them a bit of extra money, kept them out of administration for, I don't want to say how long because I have no idea, but it would have just prolonged it. There would have just been further legal action down the line. So basically, Perez... Backed by Mercedes and BWT, Mercedes owed money because of the engine and ancillary parts supply that they offer Force India. BWT is a sponsor. BWT claims that that their sponsorship came in the form of loans, which Vijay Malia in particular, the current owner of Force India, disputes. But they, BWT and Mercedes, basically supported Perez's petition, and uh, this led to the the judge basically saying, "Okay, well, this spurious thirty million pound offer isn't good enough." You're in administration now because the whole point is that this allows the team to be managed properly by an administrator, find a, a serious, sen- sensible buyer that can actually not just keep the team afloat, but level with the creditors. Everyone gets their money. The team has a long-term future and the 400 and something members of staff keep their jobs. So really easy, first thing on Saturday morning, to get the wrong impression and think that Force India had come under attack from within, led by Perez in this vicious, horrific driver-led coup. But actually, it, it, it was, as I said, the word I used at the beginning, orchestrated. The whole point was to actually secure the future of the team, not tear it, uh, you know, tear it apart from within. But it is the coup of the creditors, isn't it, against Malia, ultimately. It's these groups taking ownership and the future and sale of the team out of his hands. But the interesting thing was, I spoke to Perez on Saturday night, as you mentioned, Scott, he explained a bit more the reasoning behind the decision. And you can see that he's torn up about this whole thing. He was very emotional in explaining that he's essentially screwing over his friend. You know, he's he's acting against Malia, someone who's helped his career as a driver. He, he That's the last thing he wanted to do. But ultimately, he felt the interests of the team, the 400 people you mentioned that worked for it, their families, their livelihoods were more important than that friendship and he had to he had to do this for the for the greater good but it's been really hard for him this has been bubbling for months and he feels like he's not been able to focus on his driving he feels he's been massively distracted put in a position really that is should be nothing to do with a driver but fair play to him he's he's taken the responsibility on his shoulders I think he just wants it to all be over now and for Force India to be able to look forward to a brighter future and Force India has got in so gradually more and more trouble. They haven't been able to build parts they've designed because of this. There's there's just over half a second of performance, I'm told, that's been designed and ready to bolt on the car, but they can't build the thing because they haven't got the they haven't got the cash to do it. And they're they're 
at battling six in the constructors championship they were amazing until harsh jumpers that that team is operationally and with what it does trackside and what they do with what they've got is a fantastic team you can make a strong case that it's pound for pound the best team in formula one because that so that's that's still there but this this whole thing scott was to bring it to a head wasn't it it had to happen yeah absolutely and and it does just put them in a position where they can actually have a a viable future and i I don't want to get bogged down in cliches because it's going to sound it's going to sound really cringy but if you were going to assess any team on the grid you would i think you'd have to categorize force india as the only group of proper racers on the grid that is what that entity exists to be it's a functioning formula one team everything else everyone else i think now has some kind of maybe has would would disagree with you well on no i no, i disagree because Haas is in Haas is in formula one to, as a commercial thing for the for for, for gene Haas's company so so that that's what i mean so i force india i don't think exists anything maybe sauber is the only other option but i just think that in terms of the job that they do what they're what they're in f1 for sort of how they've represented themselves how they've i mean toto wolf said this so i think it was on 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 yeah toto wolf said this on saturday where you know the job that they've done in the face of all of their problems has been astonishing and you mentioned there they're in the, this battle for for fifth i actually they're the they're, they're not a million miles away from fourth which is astonishing when you think they've got all this performance on the table because the car's not been developed properly they had a difficult start to the year they've had all this going on in the background i just i i don't want to sound too sentimental and like i'm i'm biased or anything like that but fair fair play to them and i and i do hope for every decent individual in that team that it gets resolved quickly and they come back after the summer break refreshed in the position where they can push because they've had a miserable weekend it wasn't just the off-track stuff the off-track story obviously dominated it but it's been miserable for them i bet they couldn't wait to get out of this place Hungaroring's not a great track for Force India. Traditionally, unfortunately, yeah, and Esteban Ocon and Sergio Perez ended up 13th and 14th. There wasn't much they could do to, to gain track position. But the really positive thing is, is it does sound like there's at least a couple of credible buyers, maybe more, who are looking at this team. So this is all working to something. Again, that word orchestrated. It's not a hit and hope. It's a right. Yeah. This is what we need to push and make happen. So they've put it into administration. That that process is 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 underway now uh, there'll be talks ongoing as, as you're listening to this right now so we'll see in the coming coming weeks months whether that continuation that kind of reset shall we say to put it on a firm ground uh, happens as it stands now the team is still there and, and intact so there's something well worth uh, well worth buying and investing in yeah absolutely and then there may be a slightly bigger picture at play here as well with mercedes involvement it's no secret that they feel Ferrari has benefited from closer collaboration with its customer teams. You've got Sauber as the Alfa Romeo Ferrari junior team now. You've got Haas, which takes most of its uh, car from Ferrari in the first place. And I think Mercedes feels that maybe it's it's losing out in the development more of Formula One, or certainly the you know the the collaborative approach that can lead to to greater knowledge to their main rival, and maybe by having more involvement. And a closer relationship with Force India as a result of what will will come in the future will help them in their in their bigger fight. One one thing I, I think is worth it, worth clarifying and, and and discussing very briefly is the fact that the team's gone into administration. We've we we talked a bit over the weekend on Autosport.com about why it's good for the team, why uh, why they aimed for it, and a few people were suggesting you know, well, it wasn't very good for 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 Manor or Mauricio, it wasn't very good for Caterham. Like, this is a very different situation because. The, the the operation as a whole, the assets that are going up for sale are completely different. 
you're you're but as you said fully you're, functioning aren't yeah they? you're buying into something that actually has you know there there is there is tangible performance there's a there there is a return on investment ready and waiting well, it's a top six team isn't exactly it? exactly so this Every is a very year. different situation for that and that among everything else we've said is is why is is administration sounds scary is is a positive thing overall the other off-track news coming into the weekend is it emerged that McLaren had recruited James Key to become its new technical director. And obviously, Ben, as the, the weekend <laughs> went on, it became clear the deal wasn't 100% done. There's still no. <laughs> some negotiations with Red Bull and Toro Rosso to be completed as to exactly when James Key can start. He's uh, officially on holiday from Toro Rosso mm. now, which I think we all know what, what that means. So that, that'll be sorted out. But the important thing, Ben, is, is James Key the right man for McLaren? Yeah, that's a good question. I think... Uh, McLaren is probably the right move for James Key. Now, McLaren is a bigger team than Toro Rosso. James Key. He's got a lot of experience. Force India, Sauber, and Toro Rosso technical director. Yeah, but always always at smaller teams. And I think, you know, from his point of view, it's a a good career step. It's a chance to be, you know, a a big fish in a bigger pond, as it were. Um, I think McLaren certainly needs somebody in that traditional technical director role. It seems that their technical structures become a bit. Um, fuzzy having this kind of you know three people at the same level they had a had Matt and Morris and Peter Bedromu and Tim Goss all kind of working at the same level and who two of which have now been removed from those positions absolutely yeah and Bedromu being the one who's still he's still there and, and you think well obviously they had their reasons for doing that at the time and they probably wanted a more collaborative approach across different areas they had the Honda uh, relationship to consider but ultimately who takes responsibility when you need a final decision and you need to reject certain ideas and approve other ideas they they seem to be lacking that that and this year's car proves that all those decision making processes weren't right because it's worse than last year's car with a apparently better engine in the back so i think this is this is part of going back to a kind of more traditional technical structure that you would understand other teams having. Whether Key's the right man or not, I mean, he's he's the man they've identified. We don't know how soon they'll be able to get him. That's, you know, up for up for grabs still. Red Bull obviously aren't happy at the way it's all come out in public. If you look at how Torosso's progressed, obviously he's had limited resources to work with at the, the junior team, but Torosso's progress, particularly under the current aerodynamic regulations, hasn't been particularly stunning and I think since 2015 was probably the last time they produced a car that impressed the majority of the field they've sort of slipped further and further away from the pace I know they've changed engine suppliers a lot in four that times time. in four years four times in four years team. yeah difficult so again there's there's other elements at play here that 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 queer the pitch if you like but they have had problems developing their cars under these current rules last year this year they confused themselves with their latest error update so I, I just don't know if key's track record as the man ultimately responsible for that direction is 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 the slam dunk you would you would want if you're mclaren looking for somebody to plug in and, and turn the team around it feels a bit to me like he's the best of the available options rather than or unavailable the, well yes the, the the best of the uh uh, attainable options maybe is the uh, is is the better word there because Ben's right they they have had difficulty in 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 making progress aerodynamically under these regulations and the 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 big upgrade package that they introduced in I think Austria um, 
They didn't do what they hoped it would do. They still confusing them, isn't still it? Still confusing them. They're well, they didn't have the new front wing this weekend running, did they? They took been, that off the car, I believe. They've been, been using a mismatch of parts over the last three or four weekends, trying to work out what it is that's not working on, on the car. I and feel that. like Toro Rosso is a, a mini version of McLaren. McLaren's obviously taken the, you know, the, the headlines this year for the right reasons, but... Uh, you know they they've been throwing experimental parts of their car, not really understanding what's going on. Torosso has been doing the same thing. So you know how is that a better situation for McLaren potentially? I think we have to under- We also do have to bear in mind Torosso is a slightly odd team, in that because it is the junior Red Bull team, it is in a slightly strange position, and some of the engine changes have been pushed by what's going on with the with the main team. So it's of course it's a it's a tricky team, I think, to be technical director of, and I do. I think obviously the fewer resources you've got, the harder it becomes to if you have things like engine changes to to focus on your your aero progress, etc. And I think the the main question there is the quality of the tools that they've got. That the key is, as we've heard from McLaren, you know they use the the Cologne Toyota Motorsport Wind Tunnel, which is a, a gold standard. We know how good that is; it gives good gives good data. But the way they're interpreting that data, the way they're using it, the way they're aiming for certain objectives it's not all quite working they don't understand how everything fits together so the key is if James Key is sitting, sat there at Toro Rosso thinking oh we haven't quite got the tools to do this that and the other can he does he have in his mind what he'd want to do how you do those processes that's going to be the thing that will decide whether in terms of what he's doing he succeeds or or fails at McLaren although I should also add that there's all sorts of things going on at McLaren that could make him fail even if he does a, a perfect job so it, it's a it's a huge challenge I mean Gary Anderson who worked with him uh, there's a column that will be running on autosport.com in the plus subscriber area on uh, on Tuesday where he talks about James Key and he says well he's it's a, it's a great time for him to have this big challenge yeah definitely and he probably needs it and you know, it's it's a big one, a big, big, big challenge. But you know, you don't you don't become one of the top technical directors in Formula One without taking on these big challenges, do you? No, it's a, it's a big move for Key. I think as I said, if you're McLaren, you don't sign Adrian Newey anymore. That's the other thing. Yeah, you're, not, you're absolutely. Not playing in that league, absolutely. I think you know, for Key, it's absolutely the right move. It's a chance to step up into a bigger team, a bigger role, and and see if he's up to the job. I like him. I think he's a good guy. He comes across very well. Seems to know his stuff. He he does have a depth of understanding, and when he talks through what the team's been doing and why. All makes sense. It makes sense, yeah. and I don't. F- he doesn't come across as a maker of excuses, should we say? It's always hard from our position to be absolutely sure. Sure, I, I, don't, I haven't heard anything negative about him about politics and all this, that, and the other. So that, that's positive. You no, know, and McLaren obviously they they need someone in that role to actually just take control of the whole ship and say, right, we're going in this direction. Let's point it this way, which they they haven't had under their previous structure. But I just wonder, you know, if Key really is the answer. Surely he would have been the successor to Newey at Red Bull, because he was there. He's in the structure, as far as the the parent team goes, and they they they've overlooked him. So I just I just don't see it as the absolute answer. As Scott said it's probably more a case of the best they could get. The 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 guy I would have gone for if I had free choice was probably Andy Green, Force India. But it seems that he's perpetually happy where he is I think he was among the people that was on the list and probably uh, probably spoke to I don't know about the, the relative order of them but they'll, they'll have McLaren will certainly have not been doing their due diligence if they hadn't been, uh, been having a look at him and maybe having a, having a chat to him so, but it's going to take it's going to take years for us to know sure you know you, you're almost looking to 2021 before you can be form a definitive judgment on what uh, what James Key can do because it could easily be a year before he's even able to work there. yeah and, and that's really what McLaren's building towards isn't it they know now that it's all about the the new rules in 2021 and budget caps and potentially and 
different engine suppliers maybe that's the point at which they hit the reset button isn't it? i guess this move is really about that well i think we're gonna to have to wait quite a long time we've got we've got uh, the august break now so we've got a few weeks off before our formula one gets going and we get the next chapter of the the world championships that's a slightly less glacial time period for us to uh, for us to focus on but lewis hamilton after after this win goes into the into the break with quite a handy championship lead 213 points to sebastian vettel's 189 there will still be things going on in the August break. We'll still be doing Autosport podcasts and also check out autosport.com where right now there's all sorts of uh, the fallout and the news and the reaction to the Hungarian Grand Prix will be, well, so there's already plenty up there and there'll be more appearing as, as the day goes on and then getting into the depth of the driver market, news on Force India administration goings on and maybe even news of when James Key will actually be able to start at, uh, at McLaren rather than just being confirmed as their uh, future technical director. Also check out our plus subscriber area, all sorts of in-depth articles there my driver ratings you can disagree and set your own ratings and show how uh, how wrong you think i am and we'll have the aforementioned uh, gary anderson's column on james key pieces from uh, ben anderson scott mitchell Autosport Magazine, out every Thursday. That'll be an in-depth Hungarian Grand Prix special in a few days' time. Sister titles, F1 Racing and Motorsport.com. If you like what you hear, don't hesitate to, to chuck up a bit of a review on iTunes or your podcast uh, deliverer of choice. Uh, whether you And if you don't like us, maybe you could do a negative review if you uh, if you feel like it. We're not uh, we're not too fussy, but uh, yeah, whatever you'd you prefer like to positive, do. though. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Tell your friends. Tell everyone the... How, how wonderful these uh, these travel log slash podcasts are, and I'd also just before we go like to thank the street outside for the being erupting streets of Budapest. Other than that one car with a hole in the exhaust, it's been very very well behaved. I hope it's as well behaved in a few hours when I try and get some sleep. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Auto Sport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Reach new career heights with University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business. Flexible MBA and MS options. GMAT and GRE not required. Learn more at go.umd.edu slash smithschool. University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Inspired, fearless, unstoppable. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.